I hope that uh, you will uh, practice some of these things in your home, the lighting of a memorial candle on the anniversary of the death of a loved one. Uh, I, I watch the children as we do the rituals. It's really important to them that they participate in it and that they get a chance to ask why this is being done and you give them a response, which is part of what this message is today. Um, so uh, we're in a series on uh, biblical worldview and mindset. And we're at the point in the series where rather than talking academically about the worldview or even talking about the content as I did last week, uh, we're, we're, we need to talk about how do we implement this. What, what's the practical steps that we do? Uh, one is we know we have to view reality from the perspective given to us by God through His Word. So exactly how do we do that? And then secondly, we must be intentional about our commitment to humbly walk with God, our own mindset that is part of this. Now last week I talked about uh, what I call the triplets of the faith, faith, hope, and love, based on 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I suggested and tried to make clear that hope in the Bible is our expectation that comes as a result of God making a promise. Uh, The idea is it's not a wish. We don't wish for something uh, and that becomes our hope. God promises something and that becomes our hope. And therefore it is directly tied to the word of God. Secondly, our faith is our trust that we have in God who made the promise. It's not a force that we have to work up. It's really a matter of trusting God. And the struggle of trusting God is part of what I want to talk about today. Uh, But it is a response to God's word, uh, and we believe and trust that he will bring about what he has promised. And this faith is going to be tested as Abraham's was, and others as well. It's going to be challenged, but it is the struggle of that faith that Peter says brings about our maturity um, and our completeness as a disciple. And then the third one is love. It's the actions that we do to benefit another person at our expense, whether it is God, whether it is our neighbor, or whether it is our fellow disciple. And these actions are guided by and consistent with the commandments of God. And love is a characteristic of God, so the one who loves by choosing to act on the behalf of another at their expense is acting like God, acting like our Father, and we demonstrate that we are His children, because children should act the way their father acts. And love is the greatest of these three because at one point the hope will be no longer hoped for because it will be given. The trust will no longer be necessary as a waiting and therefore uh, those two will pass away. Faith and hope, but love will endure because that is eternal as God is eternal. So today I want to explain how we implement this perspective in our lives and in the lives of our children and grandchildren, as well as in our converts, uh, people that we are discipling. So I want you to turn to a passage we've already read today, but I want to take a fuller look at it. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is a passage that is problematic in many of the uh, commentaries uh, because they Uh, they read this verse and then try to figure it out 
instead of knowing the scriptures and see what this verse is saying uh, that is aligned with the scriptures. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing that happens with commentators. I think it's because we've reached the point where we have Old Testament experts and New Testament experts in the church, which is really a bad thing. Because you cannot be a New Testament expert in terms of the New Covenant writings uh, if you don't know the Old Testament very, very well. Uh, because you will pull them out of context, because that is their context. And if you are an Old Testament scholar, you, you need to know the New Testament so that you pull that in. So we've kind of gotten uh, caught in this specialization, and we have very few that are, that are quality generalists. And that's what we need to be. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul's talking about the difficulties of the struggle of this life, particularly as apostles and ministers of the gospel. And then he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, for though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. We belong to two realities. I've talked about this before. It's part of the biblical worldview. That we are part of this world. We are from the dust of this ground. But we are part of the eternal uh, in that God has breathed into this dirt the breath of life and we became living souls. And so in some sense, we are both, we bear both the, the creation and we bear the image of the creator we have both his breath of life in us and we have the dirt. We are breathing dirt. And the dirt part is part of this corruptible, mortal aspect. And the other part, our spirit, at death, when the body is, goes back to dust, the spirit returns to God who gave it in a time of waiting for the resurrection when the new body will be part of the new creation. And that new creation will not be subject to the mortality that we presently have. And so he says, Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, those words are words. Uh, I, the, the light affliction doesn't feel light. It feels overwhelming. It feels at times unbearable. So this has to be the biblical worldview. From God's perspective, this is a light momentary affliction. Now I can get glimpses of that. There were things that when I was a child I thought were unbearable. That now as an adult I say, suck it up and let's go with it, right? Because I have perspective. Well that eternal perspective that comes from the word of God and from the worldview of God is telling us, not telling us to suck it up, but telling us there's a great promise. As terrible as you think this is, it will fade into meaninglessness compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. That's a great, incredible promise. So we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We must live our life looking through the scriptures. Now, I've talked about this over and over, that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as it does that, what it does is it, it illuminates the path and we see reality. 
and we see that reality through the light of the word so that I know how to navigate through the, this world. Now, anyone else will see those things, but they're not seeing it through the light of the Word of God. Because through the light of the Word of God, there are other dimensions that are also illuminated. The spiritual and the eternal begin to be seen. And so you see those in a comparison, rather than just a way to navigate through this life, you see through this broader perspective. And it really does give perspective. And that's why the biblical worldview is so critical for us to know. Now he goes on then and says, so we know that if our earthly tent which we have is torn down, one of those temporal things is this body. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal from the heavens. Now, your Bible may say eternal in the heavens, and that gives the idea that there is a body up there waiting for us. We have a body here, and then when we get to heaven there's a body there. That's not what it's saying, and that's not the way it should be translated. Uh, this word, this preposition, means several things. And in most of the context here, you'll see that they keep um, calling it from, from heaven. But in this one passage, they say in heaven, and it really is from heaven. It's the eternal perspective of the body that will be resurrected, that will come from the seed of this body that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, and it will be like unto the body of the Lord. And that's why the cemetery becomes such a special place, because it is the seed of the resurrection. And the spirits will come with the Lord, and the bodies will be raised and changed, and then will be changed. And that is our hope. That is our blessed hope. So that's really important that we understand that. He says, For indeed in this body we groan, longing to be clothed from our dwelling from heaven. There They did it right, our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Now I've talked about this before. At this point, well, let me read the text and then I'll finish it because otherwise I'll come in too much and we'll be here too long. Uh, for indeed in this tent we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. The one who prepared us for this is God who gave us his spirit as a pledge. Therefore we are of good courage and know that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord and we walk by faith and not sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now what he's saying is this. Better than now. Better than now. What's now? We, we're in a body that groans. And as you get older, you'll groan more. Uh, I always think, when I read this verse, I can't help but think of Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who had an office at the top of the stairs in his home. And as he got older and older, he tells this in his radio program, as he got older and older, as he'd go up the stairs, he started groaning. Oh, man. And his wife started complaining. Will you quit groaning every time you go up the stairs? And he said, it's scriptural. In these bodies we groan. I'm just doing what the Bible says. Uh, but the idea is that the body starts wearing out on you. You know, you get up and go, got up and went. Uh, you can't do what you used to do. You can't even remember what you used to do. All that stuff happens. And you, we've all seen relatives in the evil days. Some of us are seeing it from a lot closer than we'd want, like to see it. 
uh, both in our relatives and in ourselves. But the idea is that this is a certainty. That's what's going to happen. So it's better than being in this body to be with the Lord. But to be with the Lord is to be without a body in the sense, not fully functioning. We are at rest with the Lord. We are at peace with the Lord. We, we are uh, in the joy and the glory of the Lord, but we are not fully functioning as we will in the resurrection. And so we desire not to be unclothed, Paul says, but to be clothed with the body which is from heaven, which is the resurrection body. So good, better, and best, the old Sears thing. Good is here, better to be with the Lord, best in the resurrection when we have the new body and, and the hope is fulfilled. We have to keep that focus in the biblical worldview or we begin to do pretty bizarre things in our coping with, with uh, death. Now, I want to uh, say just briefly something about that and then I want to go to another extended passage which is really the one about today. Uh, Paul has given us a biblical worldview here in the light of the ultimate hope, which is the resurrection of the dead. And we press on in this life walking, that is living by faith and not by sight. What he's saying here is that we don't look at the world as the world appears to be. But we look at the world through the biblical lens so that we understand what is going on. All of this temporary stuff is going to pass away. So if we cling to it, we make it our focus. We are making a focus on something that's going to fall apart. I once put something together. And as I was putting it together, the person with me said, this thing is not made well. It's, it's not going to last. But I was bound and determined that I was going to put it together. And as I put it together, he kept saying, it's not going to last very long. You're wasting your time. Well, I redoubled my efforts. Because dang it, I was going to put it together. And I put it together. And the first time we tried to use it, it fell apart and was not possible to be repaired. So all of that time was a waste. And that's the way some Christians are living their lives. They're living their lives thinking that what matters is the temporal because the eternal is later. And the biblical worldview doesn't see the eternal as later. It sees the full eternal as later. And some of the eternal is now. And you should be putting together the things of eternal value. Not of temporal value. Because those things are going to be lost. So, with that in mind, I'd like you to... Uh, uh, well, let me say one more thing. I just got to say it. This walk of faith trusts truth more than the appearance of reality. And that's not easy. Because it's hard to ignore what we see and what we are pressured into by the world and by our flesh. But faith trusts in God and acts consistent with the word of God while waiting for the vindication of the promise to come at the fulfillment. It is really a struggle every day to get up and say, I'm going to put on biblical glasses. I'm going to put on biblical hearing aids, I'm going to put on biblical gloves, I'm going to taste, touch, hear, smell. Instead of the sensory apparatus of the culture, I'm going to use the ones to have my senses uh, 
exercise to understand good and evil from a biblical perspective and then walk through the world in that way. That's a difficult process. It's a very difficult process in the culture you and I live in. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and I want to go through that passage um, that we read just the beginning of uh, earlier in our liturgy and I want to uh, help you understand faith as a trusting in God's word and not as a force to be increased. Uh, Some of the questions we had last week were about that. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We view the things that are eternal, that are unseen. By it, men of old gained approval. So by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Right at the beginning, what we believe as believers is that God spoke this world into existence. Now, those who go by what the world is, scientists, don't believe that. They believe that by that which we can see, we can figure out how all these things came about. That is a false conclusion according to the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says you can know some things by looking at the world, but you can't know how it got here. That we know by faith that God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the biblical worldview sees beyond what is seen, tasted, smelled, touched, and felt. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now I want you to understand that Cain and Abel are probably a perfect example of what uh, we're talking about. Abel understood what God had asked about in the sacrifices. He understood that the sacrifice had to be based on the reality of his life. And so when he brought that peace offering, he said, I am at peace with God and I am at peace with my brother. And he was, and because his testimony was true and his actions were correct, his sacrifice was accepted. But Cain was not at uh, peace with his brother and therefore not at peace with God. And yet he still gave the same testimony and it wasn't accepted by God. And God confronted him with it and said, if you do right, will you not also be accepted? But if not, sin is at the door and it will try to get you and you must master it. And then Cain killed his brother. Because the one who is not right with God and knows it is always angry with the one who appears to be right with God. And so that hatred is not a loving of the brother. As we go on, he says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him, for he obtained the witness before his being taken up that he was pleasing to God. Because Enoch walked with God and was a... Enoch walked with God. We have two Enochs in that genealogy line. We have an Enoch who walked with God and was taken because he pleased God, he trusted God, he believed God and acted in obedience with what God said. And the other Enoch was Cain's son who had a city built after him and a great reputation 
but he was in the line of those who do not hear God and do not follow God. So we get this parallel. Then we have uh, this statement. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So the first part of faith is to believe that God is and that God has made promises that he will keep. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So now he gives us examples. He begins with Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Now, what is the faith? God said he's going to destroy the world. And you will be saved if you will build this ark and put your family in it. So Noah had a choice. Do I believe what God says? It's never rained before. It's never flooded before. I'm building something that nobody's ever built before. This is ridiculous. And everybody thought it was ridiculous. And nobody bought his message, which ended up condemning the world, right? But Noah said, if God says it, then it's going to happen and I'm going to live as if what God says is real despite a reality around me that mocks it. By faith, Noah. Then Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed going out to a place where he received an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Wow. Everybody I talk to, God tells them exactly what they're going to do. Isn't that amazing? But the biblical pattern seems to be God says, all right, let's go. Well, where are we going? That's for me to know and you to find out. I mean, he doesn't exactly say that, but that's kind of what he says. Come to a land that I will show you. And then when it gets there, I will give it to you. And I'm going to give you a son. And he waits forever to give him the son. Abraham tries to help him out with that. We, we know the story. Abraham ultimately believed God. And when he believed God and was keeping his eyes on the promises, then he did all right. Whenever he got his eyes on the circumstances, trying to figure out how the promises are going to work in that circumstance, he started running amok and creating problems for himself. Wake up, believer. That's what we do. That's my, that's my testimony. When I have trusted what God has said and lived the way God says to live, and I have let God worry about the results, my life has been better. The struggle has been there, but I haven't had all the problems I've had when I try to help God out and make God's word come true in my life. That's not faith, that's manipulation. Faith trusts that God will do what he's going to do, therefore I'm going to do what God tells me to do. That's obedience that's based on faith. And so that's what Abraham and Sarah are about. And then in verse 13 of chapter 11 it says, These all died in faith without receiving the promises. If you read the scriptures, you will find that virtually everybody dies without the promises coming through. Some of the promises come true, but all of the promises don't. The big eternal promises don't come true. So you will die in faith or you will die in doubt. Either way, you're going to die. So he says, they saw them and having welcomed them from a distance, 
having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. We want a kingdom. We want all this stuff. But we don't want the one that's here. We want the one that will be. And so he talks about that in, in quite uh, clear context. He then talks about uh, Abraham getting the child even when he was as good as dead. So even when there is no way in the world that the promise can be kept, he believed that God could keep the promise. And then, of course, he was tested by being told to kill the promise. Do, how far will we trust God and live in his direction? So, those who have gone before us have lived by faith. And they have made testimony to us. That's what this text is. The testimony of those who have walked before us. And there are others who aren't here that have, that have walked before us. And their testimony agrees with them that God is faithful no matter what happens. And so what we need to do is we need to learn from them. And those who have gone before us have broken down three things that we have to do. So here comes the practical stuff. First, we have to know what God has said. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. We have to know the promises. We have to know the commandments. We have to know what God says he's going to do. And we have to know what God tells us to do. And let me tell you, God is not playing hide and go seek with that. He's not going to teach you in the circumstances. He's not going to teach you in your emotions. He's not going to put some weird thought in your head. He has given us his word so that we know what the promises are. And so we know what we're supposed to do. And, and so the first thing we have to do is to learn that, and I mean memorize it. We are probably at a disadvantage because of the printing press. Before the printing press, the Torah would be brought out, the Gospels would be brought out, they would be read, and people would work very hard to memorize what was read. So that they had a copy of it in here. Then we got access to Bibles. So that we have a copy of it right here. But right here is not right here. And we have in the last 50 years. Reached the point where the memorization of scripture. By God's people is at an all time low. And yet we have more Bibles and more Bible translations than any group on earth. We have somehow become readers of the word and not learners of the word. And maybe deceiving our own selves. So, first thing I would say is you have to start making it clear that you're going to start memorizing large texts from the scriptures. They come in two paths, two ways. There are stories and there are commandments. And you need to get the stories in your head and you need to get the commandments in your head. Secondly, you have to trust God will not rip us off. This is Dr. Lewis's famous statement. Uh, if you think God will rip you off, then you're going to hedge your bets. So the issue of faith and the issue of trust is not how is God going to do it? But whether or not God who says he'll do it 
will do it. And if we listen to those voices of those who have come before us, they all say, yes, he will. And therefore, we have a cloud of witnesses that God is faithful. But our faith will be tested. It's going to be tested by our own flesh, our desires and our wants. It's going to be tested by the world that's going to try to conform us to the norms and goals of the world. And it will be tested by the devil who will sow discord and deception among the brethren. So struggling against sin, as this chapter talks about, or missing the mark, is a major problem for us. So we have to know it. We have to memorize the scripture. We have to then trust that God will keep his word even when the circumstances say he won't. And thirdly, we have to obey. We have to do and focus the activities of our life on this walk of faith. God will do what he will do. We have to do what we're commanded to do. And that's not what this young generation wants. I hear it on campus all the time. They want to do great things for God. They want to be missionaries. They want to be musicians. They want to be preachers. They're going to do all this great stuff for God. Not because God has said to do it, but because they're significant, they're going to do something significant for God. There's an old song that I used to sing. I don't sing much in, in uh, um, solo stuff anymore. Um, and... It's about a guy who says he's going to be a martyr for Christ. The song is called Follow Me. And, and the last verse says, If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. And the last line then, So then if by death to living, I, is all you ask of me. Then I'll lift my cross and follow. Follow thee. We don't want to, it's like husbands. You, guys, you know what we're like. We will swim the widest ocean to prove we love. We will conquer an army to prove we love. We'll, we'll take out the trash, too little. We, we won't do those little things. But that's what we should be doing. The big stuff uh, you know, we, we plan to do, we just never get around to it. You know, we, 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 have the, we have the dream. But the reality is, it's the day in, day out little stuff that we need to be doing, the obedience to God. So, uh, we trust God who justifies the ungodly, and then we trust Him that if we will learn from His narratives and we will obey His commandments, that we will be doing what He asks and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him that way. So we have to know the word. We have to trust the God who gave it. And we have to obey its teaching and love then from that perspective. Now how do we do that with our children? This is the hard part. Because everybody could say what I just said. We all know this, right? It's the doing it that's hard. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a passage that you guys are familiar with. It's one that is the heartbeat of Judaism. And it gives us the model for doing this. 
Chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statute, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded uh, me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you this day shall be on your heart. That's the mind. You have to memorize them. These words uh, you shall then diligently teach to your son and you shall talk about them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to give to your fathers, uh, into cities which you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God, uh, and otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You will not put the Lord to the test as you tested him at the bitter waters. But you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers, driving out the enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. And when your son asks you in time to come, what did the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to him, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed great distressing signs and wonders before our eyes. He brought us from there in order to bring us and give us this land. So the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes, the fear of the Lord for our good always as it is today. It will be our righteousness for us if we are careful to observe the commandments which the Lord our God uh, has commanded us. Now this is a historical passage, but the principles are there. And those principles are... Uh, four things that I think we need to do. So I'm going to do those real quick, and then I'll be done. First one, saturation of the Word. We must put God's Word in us and around us constantly. God said, you're going to put these words in your mind. You're going to write them on your doors. You're going to put them on your arm. You're going to put them on your head. You're going to put them everywhere. Why? Because we forget. And we've got TVs that are telling us stuff. We've got radios that are telling us stuff. We've got books that are telling us stuff. We've got people that are telling us stuff. And it's very easy to become conformed to the world very quickly and just have an occasional Bible reading. So we've got to find a way to do it. So I'm going to beg you to 
reconfirm and reestablish your family altar near the entry of your house so that you don't get in that house or out of that house without remembering that this is a religious home that belongs to God. And do it in front of your children. Secondly, you, you need some art on, your, on the walls of your home. You need some statements made around there. Put it around there. Put Bible verses up. Change the Bible verses from time to time. Kids remember verses that were up on, on the walls. They remember the prayer of serenity that was sitting there. They remember uh, a text, as for me and my house, we will serve. The, they'll remember the, the 23rd Psalm. Get words of God and put them on the walls. And put them in your courtyards. Talk about them when you get up. Make sure that it's second nature. We, you don't have to work to speak English. You shouldn't have to work to speak Bible. And you need to do it with the kids. And you need to let them hear you. And they need to grow up in an environment that is filled with the word of God. As the New Testament says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. Now, I grew up in a family that constantly spoke movie dialogue. And I taught my family to do the same thing. So we are always saying lines from movies. Any of you from that kind of an environment? Okay. Some of you are talking rock and roll or music things or literature. Whatever it is that you do, you need to, that needs to be the way we have the word of God in us. We need to start where it's so natural to quote a verse. I don't mean say, well, Philippians 4.13 says. I don't mean that way. I mean that in the context of our normal life, we say something that is a biblical text. So that the kids are reinforced and we're reinforced in that context. And then your household should be decorated for the holy days. Even if most of the holy days are done uh, here. Now we're about to hit Thanksgiving, which is an American Christian one. There should be some things there. And biblical texts of Thanksgiving ought to be around. Advent is coming. Christmas is coming. Epiphany is coming. They're all coming because they come around every year. I mean, it seems like we just did this last year, right? And, and so you want those kids in their growing up stages... To almost know what time of year it is, not by a calendar, but by the decorations of the home. On the gates and on the walls and in the tables and all those places. We need to make this next year the year of reinforcement for ourselves and for our kids. And begin to be very intentional about this. Secondly, we have to talk about this. We have to do God talk. I don't mean God talk. I mean Regular talk that includes biblical text. God said that we'd have this kind of problem. Uh, God promised that he'd get us through this. We have hope that, that, that we will see our loved ones again. That ought to be just normal discussion around the table and in the hallway and in the bedrooms and in the yard uh, uh, so that we don't have to figure out what to say. It's a part of who we are so it will become a part of who they are. And then thirdly, you know as well as I do uh, that we have to become doers. We have to observe these things. Doing the word means make it a habitual part of our everyday activities. 
Uh, we don't do it when we feel like it. We do it daily. We find a way to be obedient. Um, my, my morning prayer uh, always includes reciting the three great commandments. Now, it sometimes catches me. I've just been driving, which is my backslidden condition. And then I get out of the car and I do my prayers and I say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, that was the one. That's right. And you shall love one another as I have loved you. And so I'm reminded that I am to this day give to God. I am to this day give to a neighbor as I see them in need. I am to reinforce and minister to fellow believers. And that's what I'm supposed to do. And I remind myself every morning. And you know what? I need it. But I, for the last year as I've done this, and I wanted to wait a year before I uh, said anything about it, saying it every morning is having an effect on me remembering to do it. Because I don't know about you, but I forget stuff. In the moment, and in the week, and in the month, and in the year. And things that I used to do, I don't do anymore. The habits go away. It's really easy to break a habit. It's really hard to establish a habit. But the habit of doing and observing the Word of God needs to be what we do. I don't know how much... I think probably the biggest struggle in our home in terms of observance has been trying to get the Shabbat with some regularity. We have great intentions. We, we even prepare. And then we have to struggle. We have to find ways to, to be doers so that that permeates what's going on in the home. So... Saturation of the Word of God, so much that we can talk it and we can live it. And then we have to, from time to time, with some regularity, we have to examine our lives and reestablish the habits and spiritual disciplines uh, so that we don't forget the Lord. The Lord said to Israel, you know what you guys are going to do? When life is going well, you're going to forget me. We never forget God when life is going badly. Have you noticed that? When things are difficult, we all remember the Lord. Hey! <laughs> right? But when things are going good, who needs Him? And He warned us about that. And so we have to monitor our lives. Am I forgetting the Lord? Am I forgetting my first love? Am I beginning to become lukewarm about this? Am I so automatic with my observance, so automatic with speaking the words of God, that I am doing it with no thought, of it at all, no consciousness of it at all, no intentionality of it at all, it's just become mere habit, then it's time to resort that. Now, what I do is when I'm really at a place where everything is habitual and, and meaningless, I rearrange furniture. I rearrange furniture in the house. I rearrange my books, my office. Not as bad as I used to be. Linda used to wake up and I'd change a room. But all of a sudden, I saw things differently. I am, because we've moved recently, I'm seeing things differently. 
Now, that wasn't my intentionality. That's just the circumstances. But it's that way. Sometimes you have to change your environment so that you see it. So we have a rich group of traditions in in Judaism and Christianity. So if these prayers aren't working, there are others you can use. If these verses aren't there, get to the other verses. God's given us variability because he knows we get bored. But God's not the one boring us. We're the one boring us. So we need to talk. We need to saturate ourselves with the word of God so that it's in us and around us everywhere. And that should be done literally. Family altar, home art and walls, holy day decorations. We need to talk the word of God. Find a way to talk about God with your children. Reinforcing biblical truth with the children Every day, and your spouse, and each other, and yourself. Observe, be a doer of the word, reestablish your spiritual disciplines, and, and do what uh, you need to do in that context. And then, from time to time, reflect and see how you're doing. I step on the scale every morning, it's not always good news. Now, the last six months, it's been good news. The last six years, it was, it was not good news. Okay? I was buffeting my body. I was enlarging my tents. I was living off the fat of the land. I was becoming the fat of the land. And I decided that that was not good stewardship of my life. And I like to eat. Anybody around me knows that. But I decided that that needed to change. And I have to monitor it to make sure. Now, I'm not being so anal about it that, that I rejoice on every loss of weight and, and complain at every gaining of weight. But I've learned now that if I am intentional about it, I can maintain uh, my weight and and drop to the levels that I want to do. The problem now is this is the only suit I can wear because the others I swim in. Okay, and I had a pair of pants that when I took the belt off dropped to my knees, <laughs> so I'm not wearing those around. Uh, so let me end with one verse, because when I do this kind of a message, there's not a woman in this room that won't say amen. But that's not where the responsibility lies. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. And maybe this is a verse, guys, that we need to place somewhere in the house, on the mirror, in the closet, over the kids' rooms, I'm, I'm, I'm re-aware of this, having Brenna in the house. Uh, you know, for a long time, we just had puppies. You know, and they're easy. Well, they're not easy, but, you know, they don't listen to you. So, uh, come to think of it, neither do kids. <laughs> but you know what I mean. So, Ephesians, 4, uh, Ephesians 5, 4 says, 6, 4, I'm sorry. Six four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Deuteronomy and Ephesians are very clear that the accountability for the raising of the children in their spiritual life is we men. Uh, Women are usually gung-ho to do it. And we're really good at saying good, then you can do it. But that's not the task that God has given us. So all the ministry out in public, all the great things that we do don't mean anything if we're not addressing it in the home. As uh, a man who strongly influenced me once said, if Christianity doesn't work in your home, don't export it. It's really easy to go somewhere and export it because then we just have to do the advertisement. But if our kids don't see us struggling with the faith, if they don't see us praying, they don't see us crying out to God, they don't see us denying ourselves for something God has told us to do, when we have a better opportunity to do something we'd like to do, they're not going to see that as a spiritual discipline. And they're going to say, oh, I see what it is. I have to do it as a kid. But when I'm not a kid anymore, I don't have to do it. That is not a lesson we want to teach our children in this generation. It was dangerous in my generation. It is eternally dangerous in this generation. Because they're growing up in a world that has very little influence from the word. So... We need to set ourselves to doing that and reinforcing one another in it. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's pray.